Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. I want to welcome my colleague, Michael Igo, who's a senior reporter at DevX. Hey, Michael. Hey, Raj. How are you? I'm doing great. And we've got a very special guest in Zainab Salbi. Hi, Zainab. Hi, everyone. Good to be it's here. It's great to have you. Um, you know, I think everybody knows you, but you are the co-founder of Daughters for Earth. And you wear a whole bunch of hats. You're the chief awareness officer at the Fine Center. You host your own podcast called Redefine, which I highly recommend. Um, and probably most people know you because you founded Women for Women International, um, which is you know a leading international NGO. So it is just great to have you join us today. And Zainab, I think you were actually in Dubai, right? I am actually uh, in Dubai, indeed, um, attending COP28. And I just... Uh, I'm still in a public reception, to be honest, where His Majesty, the King of England, was just there, is there still, and a few other leaders from all over the world talking about um, the need for, you know, and this particular meeting was more about the need for more philanthropy and the private sector engagement and climate solutions. And I'm here to advocate for what women are doing for climate change and their need. It's so great to have you there on the ground to help lead this conversation because that is exactly what we want to talk about today as COP has just kicked off. I will be there myself in a couple of days. And, and Michael, I think you're headed there too, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll be there on Monday. So today was the was the beginning of COP28 and uh, there was already big news in the loss and damage fund uh, getting approval and getting funding. I wonder, um, Michael, maybe you want to tell us uh, a word about what people have been talking about and expecting and what happened. Yeah, sure. So if you've been paying attention to uh, to this particular COP and the lead up to it, you know, this fund was really sort of one of the big ticket items going into COP28. Um, it stemmed from a decision made last year to launch the loss and damage fund, which, you know, is a, a new climate finance institution. But what sets this one apart is that it will, you know, seek to provide financing to countries that are already experiencing loss and damage due to climate change. So, um, sort of yet another piece of the climate finance puzzle, um, however, still an emerging one. So the, the big questions were, you know, um, where should this fund be located um, and how should it be operationalized? And, and there's been a lot of negotiation, a lot of wrangling back and forth in the weeks leading up to COP on those questions. Um, in the, the pre-COP, uh, negotiators came to a, a sort of interim agreement to host the fund at the World Bank for four years under certain conditions. And the big news today was that um, that uh, agreement was was approved uh, on the first day of the COP, which really takes sort of one of the big thorny issues, uh, at least partially off the table. Now the question is, does it get funded? And it did get some funding. I mean, it's well, obviously funded to a very small extent. But go ahead, Zainab. Well, it got some funding. I think the news today also fresh uh, is uh, UAE just announced $100 million to fund and the U.S. announced $2 million. I could be wrong, Zeta, but I think the U.S. number is $24.5 million, 
which is still a tiny amount of money. Um, and you're absolutely right. UAE announced 100 million as did Germany. They kind of jointly announced the, the biggest pledges. Uh, Japan made a pledge. And in, in total, I, and the UK made a pledge. And I think the total now is about $300 million, which depending on your perspective, uh, is a good start or it is uh, woefully, it is. woefully little given that I think the estimates are the fund needs to achieve 400 billion annually. It's a good, it's a good start giving that it's the first day and hopefully a lot more will come afterwards. <laughs> yeah. What, what else are you hearing there on the ground? Zeta? I mean, honestly, I just arrived. So this is the first event I had. Uh, there is, you know, a lot of, the issue of gender representation is still a big issue. A lot of people are feeling that still gender is not, women are not fully represented and fully not at the discussions tables. But this is, again, the first hour, literally, it's day zero. Um, so I'm excited to attend tomorrow and then see what else um, is a major issue here. Yeah, tell us more about this issue of women and climate and you know what you think is missing in the conversations I, I i understand cop has just started cop 28 has just begun but in general when you engage on these issues where where do you think we're falling short or what's the opportunity we're missing well it's for me it's as simple as you have 50 percent of the population not fully represented at the decision making table and not fully financed at their for their actions so let me be more specific um, we do know that women are impacted the most uh, by climate change, according, not the most, but severely. I, I, can't, I don't want to compare either or, but according to the UN, 80% of climate uh, refugees are actually women and children. You have a huge uh, disproportionate impact of uh, food insecurities, among other things. So we do have these data. What we don't have is how much women are actually leading some climate actions, particularly on uh, conservation, the protection of biodiversity, the shifting of uh, to regenerative agriculture, where women represent up to 60% of small-scale farmers, and the adaptation to renewable energy. And yet women's actions are getting, is getting two cents out of every philanthropic dollar that is going to climate solutions. And so you have for me, as someone who has worked with women all my life and worked with women survivors so far as all my life, I see a very similar arc of the story. That is, women are impacted by wars or by conflicts, same in this crisis we are impacted the most, that I see women always keeping life going above and beyond uh, in war zones, and it's the exact same thing in climate. And in war zones, in the humanitarian sector, in my 10 years at Women for Women International, you know, women uh, get 10 cents out of every humanitarian dollar. It's much worse in the climate sector where women get two cents out of every climate philanthropic dollar. So it's the same arc of the story. And, you know, for me, it's the biggest crisis facing humanity. And I just really do not see how we can address it properly without the full inclusion of women. And because addressing it properly, I define it not only as having more technologies and having more financing, we, we, which we definitely need, but we really need to ultimately have a different relationship with Earth. And what women, when we look at what women do, the, you know, as you know, Daughters for Earth is to find and fund and celebrate women-led climate action. So I'm constantly looking for, uh, at women's efforts and as we fund them and support them. 
and it's amazing it's quite amazing actually what they are what they are doing and yet it's still not talked about it's still not included it they're they look at they the way they implement the work is very different it's not only about them they always bring the community along we have a lot to work and to learn from women's actions and we really need to I mean, it's we need to include women for our humanity's sake. It's not even for women's sake. It's it's this this cannot evolve into a better solution without the full inclusion of fifty percent of the population. Yeah, and, and you know, it connects so well to these broader themes around localization and effectiveness of development funding, and including the debate that Michael just raised about whether or not the loss and damage fund you know should be hosted by the World Bank. Obviously, we now know it is going to be hosted by the World Bank, but the agreement includes like two review moments when they can decide to take it out and make it a fully independent fund. And, and I think part of the reason is exactly what you're getting at, Zainab, which is a concern among some of the lower income countries that if the money is administered by the World Bank, it will be non-transparent, opaque, and it will lead to kind of larger scale programs that don't actually get to the grassroots leaders, including women leaders, who are the ones most likely to to make real impact and, and kind of a cost-effective impact. You know, one just little example I can share that I heard from a professor uh, in Northern India who works a lot on, on health issues. He told me this example of how, you know, there's a lot more uh, heat waves now in that region and a lot of the farmers are affected. Of course, a large percentage of the farmers are women as is the case in much of the world. And he says, at first people thought, well, you can just drink a lot more water and if you do that, you can manage the slightly higher temperatures and still work in the fields. Um, but his anecdote to me uh, is that actually he found that a lot of the women were not drinking more water and as a result were getting ill. And when he talked to them about what's happening, why aren't you drinking more water? It was because there isn't proper sanitation facilities. There aren't, there aren't toilets uh, for them to use. And so for safety and security issues, they really felt like they couldn't drink more water because there was nothing they could do to go to the bathroom. And it's the kind of thing where if you don't have somebody from the community on the ground, a woman leader, somebody who gets it, you can very easily kind of miss the big picture and end up with real effects for, you know, what, as you say, Zanab, or maybe the, the people most impacted by the, by the climate crisis. So I thought I'd just share that little story, but let, let me, let me turn back to you, Michael, quickly, if I can, on just, uh, what are sort of the other big things we're looking at at this year's COP? Yeah, thanks, Raj. I mean, it's inescapable that this COP is happening in the UAE, a Petro state. You know, this has gotten a lot of coverage already. And I think the interesting framing around this is, you know, on one hand, sure, this seems like a deeply ironic place to hold a climate summit or to discuss something like, you know, a fossil fuel phase out, which is one of the the sort of big ambitious hopes for this particular COP is to get some language around that. But on the other hand, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here for, you know, a presidency um, with deep connections to the fossil fuel industry to actually leverage those relationships and, you know, extract some concessions and agreements from the fossil fuel industry and from other countries in a similar position um, that, you know, uh, a presidency that's not in that position might struggle to do. So I think, you know, for a lot of folks, that's going to be the key kind of, you know, double-edged sword, if you will, to, to sort of watch in this particular COP. Yeah, I guess, you know, we already saw one of the positive sides of that double-edged sword in what Zayda mentioned, that $100 million 
pledge from the UAE. You know, one advantage of having UAE as a host is that they have the financial wherewithal as a Petra state to make that kind of a pledge. Who knows if that's just the beginning or if there'll be more. Uh, but as you say, this is one of the most consequential questions. I know the BBC had a big uh, revealing story just a few days ago saying that the UAE was planning to have kind of private uh, talks on making oil deals on the sidelines of the COP, which the UAE denies. But it just raises that question. And I know you interviewed Rachel Kite, who we've had on this show in the past. Uh, and she talks about kind of the two sides of this, this coin, like maybe UAE is in a better position because they're a petro state to actually negotiate with other petro states and with oil and gas companies to change their behavior and to make different choices going forward. I, I don't know, Zainab, what, what's your feeling being there on the ground about uh, having UAE as the host this year? Disclaimer, I come from an oil producing country also. I'm born and raised in Iraq. And I feel two things to share about that. I'm glad it is. I know the criticism that how could we, you know, as we need to phase out out of fossil fuel, you know, a, a major producer of fossil fuel is hosting uh, the COP. And, you know, for me, it forces discussion on two things. One is how can we engage with cultures and countries that are producing oil and fossil fuel and, different, and gas uh, in a different way? Um, and just to give some cultural background and perspective on it, for us, we do not, for the longest time, oil is very intertwined with our culture and with, it, with our narrative of our history. It is, you know, so, and, and it, it comes in context where, you know, we have, we're like hurt people at the moment in the Middle East, very hurt people, um, not by damages that we've done with each other, which we have, but also by damages that the West has done to the, to the region. We have been called terrorists and uh, uh, oppressors and, you know, fundamentalists. And now we are also called bad people for having fossil fuel. Now, I'm not, I, I am a climate activist. I do believe that we need to phase out of fossil fuel and we need to shift to renewable energy as soon as possible. And I do believe we need to engage in conversations with more compassion and more humility so we can engage cultures where they see oil and they see fossil fuel as the essential part of this culture and narrative as we do in the Middle East. This is a fact. Can cultures shift? Yes. Can cultures evolve? Absolutely. Can we see that transition? I believe in it. I believe we can bring people in the Middle East and UAE and Iraq and Iran and, and Qatar and all different producers in, 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 in the narrative where they can also lead that shift rather than feeling that they've been talked down to, constantly lectured by the West, especially in these days where the West has lost, to be honest, question moral abilities. Now, two things. The I have read the BBC report and I find it very, very interesting. I have to say, and I'm telling you this from a, a, a local uh, culture, if, if you may. Yes, there is cynicism. And the cynicism is not from the BBC report on, that shows the report of the West, you know, of UAE possibly dealing with business deals. The cynicism is actually from people in the region who also say, you know, the West tell us about uh, phasing out of fossil fuel, but then they send us their presidents and their prime ministers and their oil ministers and saying, please increase the production. The inconsistencies and the hypocrisy is happening on all sides. And we cannot just point the finger, not now not in this stage of only one culture or one country. It is inconsistent even for America to produce and to ask 
countries that are producing oil to increase the production, which it has. And so we need compassion. We need generous listening to each other. We need to have more humility in conversations. We need to shift from lectures and pointing the fingers to saying what is at stake is our collective humanity beyond cultures, beyond nationalities, beyond borders. And we have all been guilty in getting us to this phase, maybe more some cultures more guilty than the others, but we've got to work together in a different way in order to move forward for the future. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm familiar, and I have to say, you can't have this conversation right now without, you know, there's a lot of inconsistencies. There's inconsistency of the wars that are happening, or America's financing of the wars that are happening right now. These are all intertwined. We cannot separate them. We've got to look at them at the big picture. And we've got, we cannot only point the finger at another, one culture without looking at everyone and their own, uh, we, we, our own complicity, complicity in getting us to where we are right now. I think you're so right to, to bring this kind of nuanced perspective, which we so rarely hear. Right? Nowadays, very much you hear one side or the other. And I think you brought some really important nuance to the conversation. And it's worth remarking, as you did, that politics plays a big part here. Um, we had a story you know, this week talking about the, the, uh, the winner of the Dutch elections, Gerd Wilder, and uh, his pledge basically to cut foreign assistance to zero. And you know, it reminds me of when you know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton went up against each other in the 2016 campaign. And and Hillary Clinton was accused of not having the kind of nuance and talking about the coal industry and that by some analysts, uh, you know, measure it helped uh, Donald Trump win the presidency. And, and so when you think about how do you talk about these issues in a way that doesn't create animosity from those who still have a lot of political power, uh, think about like you know, union workers in coal industries like in South Africa and how important they are to South Africa's energy transition. So I think you're, you're raising a really interesting point. And I think there are climate activists on both sides at that point. There are some who say, you know, we, we have to leave it all in the earth and we can't, you know, pump even a single additional barrel. And of course, then there are others who say, look, we have to find ways to work with these existing industries because they're going to be with us for quite a while. So I, I think it's a fascinating uh, set of questions. And the politics around this is interesting because you have kind of the the mainstream, broad public debates, the statements people make in public, and then you have what happens at a cop, sort of behind the scenes, you know, in the private rooms, which is where a lot of the action actually is. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevX. If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevX Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevX Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevX Newswire and visit devx.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. Michael, I, I wonder, you know, you've been to COPS before. Can you describe a little bit about what you you kind of think their purpose is or kind of what levels do you think they operate? Yeah, absolutely. I just, I, I thought all of that was so well put, like the sort of the spirit of, of COP being a spirit of, you know, we're all <laughs> um, 
we're all complicit and we're all responsible. And I think, you know, that sort of speaks to um, the durability of this process. You know, there's sort of a tendency every year to, to feel like the integrity of COP itself is sort of on trial and like, you know, is this going to be the last one? And, and, um, and it's, it's been remarkable to me to just sort of see the, the durability of the process. And I think that's because of exactly what Zainab was saying, which is like, there is no other place where every kind of actor in the global climate regime uh, can come together and talk about the ways that they're falling short and that others are falling short and to try to sort of move, move the needle in some incremental way forward. And, you know, the, the incrementalism of the process can be really frustrating, but I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's almost um, sort of secondary to the, the multilateralism itself and just the, the existence of a space um, to, you know, maintain that kind of uh, ability to solve problems among parties that are uh, coming at this crisis from such different directions. So, you know, that's one thing. When people talk about COP, they often sort of break it down into three different levels. There's the negotiations that happen, you know, in the, the chamber itself and, and get very, very technical. And in this particular COP, you know, it's an incredibly um, daunting sort of to-do list that negotiators are faced with. Um, then you've got sort of the, the leadership level and we'll see a lot of the, you know, the really big uh, names here in Dubai um, expressing their, their commitment to climate action. And, you know, that's important for, um, for demonstrating political will and also sort of linking up with the, um, the technical steps that are, that are advanced in the negotiations. And then there's the everything else, the, the private sector, the, the civil society activism, um, which can both be very productive um, in terms of actually generating, you know, concrete pledges. And also I think plays an important cultural role in, you know, movement building around climate change. And you know, I've heard a lot of introspection from activists about, you know, why they haven't been more successful. I talked to Kumi Naidu, who used to run Greenpeace and Amnesty International and is sort of, you know, having this a little bit of a, uh, an, I guess I could say an existential crisis around sort of the role of activism in, in climate action and sort of how to, to make activism function more effectively in this particular domain. So, you know, all of those conversations are happening at a COP, um, which is probably one of the reasons they've gotten so big. <laughs> right, 70,000 people are expected this year. I attended my first COP last year in Egypt and was blown away by the scale of the thing. Um, I had no idea, you know, that I think that one was 30 or 40,000 and here we're expecting 70,000 in Dubai. And just to your point about how the COP plays an important role in identifying what the key issues are and kind of elevating them. This is going to be the first time there's a COP with a health day. So on Sunday, there's going to be an entire day focused on the health impacts of climate change and what can be done about them. And you know, I've talked to a lot of people in the global health field who think this is a really important kind of watershed moment because even longstanding leaders in global health don't really focus that much on climate. That's the concern I hear. Uh, big institutions that work on health still don't really pay that much attention to climate from, from what I hear. And, 
And this day, you know, has the opportunity to change that because it will really focus global attention and all those tens of thousands of people who are on, on the ground about, well, what's really at stake? What does it really mean to talk about the impact of, of climate on health? Things like, you know, air pollution and heat stroke and, um, you know, rising water and, and waterborne and, and mosquito-borne diseases moving. And I think it's going to be a big part of, of uh, this year's COP, and it's going to be maybe a good showcase for why COPs are so important. What, what do you think, Zainab, about kind of the role of the COP itself? I mean, I think it's very important. Listen, I mean, I, 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 Michael, I really like what, uh, what you said about, you know, our existential relationship with activism and how do we do it. I recently was in a retreat with Buddhist monks and climate activists, and it was really centered around how do we, you know, relate to each other in a different way and relate even to the to the issues of advocacy and to the people we want them to come along our side rather than, you know, uh, stay uh, divided, you know. So we, we do need to evolve, I believe, into a different way of communication and talking with each other. We really do. Um, this And, and it's, it's, hard, it's becoming harder and harder that in a world that feels so divided uh, right now. And frankly so hostile and so much aggression happening and you know I as I said I come from the Middle East I come from Iraq a country that has been destroyed it's very hard for me to look at all these issues in a separate way I see wars for example very interconnected to climate change I for example I do not understand the financing of more weapons in current wars because weapons for me is poison to earth when actually it's earth needs to have healthy diet and you know or rest let alone poisoning her you know we just need a new dialogue new relationships and a new spirit new value systems honestly and how we do it so yes we can talk about health today and about food yesterday and about technology tomorrow and we're going to keep on talking about all the things to make the point that oh my god her earth is hurting and as a result our own existence is at stake. And, you know, like that's for me is the bottom line. And these are all for messages, warning, alarms, you know, it's going to impact us more and more and more as we, as each year and faster than we thought. And the poorer you are, the more you're impacted. And frankly, even the rich will not be able to protect themselves from, from the current crisis. Right. So it's, the the call out which i hope to see i hope to hear if not this time then other times if not from everyone then from some people is that we really need a new value system that relates to each other where we can relate to each other and to earth in a different way and as you were speaking there were an indigenous groups just uh, perform uh, not performing sorry singing just I was hoping that I won't speak when they were singing because you would hear their sound and may be distracting. But it was beautiful. And this is what indigenous people tell us about our relationships and how we need to honor our relationships with Earth and how we need to make decisions that are long lasting. We need to reassess the infrastructure that has got us to where we are as humanity, our economy, our, our systems, our politics. Is this happening? No. Is COP a good way to do it? Yes. Do we have a chance to improve it and do it in a different way? 
A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yes. And and do we need all the voices? Yes. And do we need all value new value systems that are anchored in a different way of relating to Earth, rather than extraction instead of instruction, rather more with loving and honoring and reverence to Earth. I do think we do, and we're not there yet, unfortunately. But we can. I am an optimist at heart. Yeah, I think that's such an important way to think about it. And you know, part of our job as journalists is always to be skeptical and to question the the pronouncements and the pledges that you hear at something like a cop. But there really is something inspiring about being there on the ground and seeing that many people gathered because they believe that the earth is at this important crossroads and there's something we can do about it. And, and there is, you know, it's inescapable that kind of inspiration that also comes even amid all the the missed targets and the, you know, underfunded pledges, et cetera. Um, there's a lot there to, to feel good about. Um, you know, before we wrap up, there were just a couple of philanthropy stories we covered this week that I thought w- would be worth mentioning. And one is just somewhat inspirational that uh, there, there's a activist, a pro-democracy human rights activist, uh, Suyen Barona, who was in prison in, a, in Nicaragua for speaking out against uh, President Daniel Ortega's regime and was released in February. Uh, came to the U.S., got reunited with her son, and now just months later was announced as the new head of a $25 million you know, fund that uh, OSF has put together uh, to, support, to support and encourage women in politics. So I thought that was an interesting story that maybe connects in some ways to what you were talking about earlier, Zainab. Uh, and you know, maybe you have a thought about that, but there's another story too that, that perhaps you have a thought on, which is um, a piece we did on some pushback to the Mackenzie Scott approach to philanthropy, right? She's famous for having gifted some $14 billion. I think it's the fastest philanthropic giving in history. Uh, And she's done it in in a very non-traditional way, which is what they call trust-based philanthropy, essentially identifying, you know, mostly small local organizations and writing very large unrestricted checks to them. And we had a piece this week that, that examined some critiques of that, um, and you know, there's plenty of people who just say, well, there's not enough accountability in this. How do we know how that money is being spent? Or these are leaders of you know, relatively small organizations. They may not be really in a position to handle that windfall. And what happens when the money runs out? Are they going to face some kind of a funding cliff? Um, and you know, as somebody who's started a couple of organizations and involved with many others, I'd, I'd be curious to get your take on on that view, on Mackenzie Scott's approach on trust-based philanthropy, uh, just before we wrap up today, Zina. I just wrote a piece with my colleague Casey Rogers actually on the issue. It's about to come on December 3rd or 5th uh, on the Edelman Report about that. Um, here's, I mean, you know, as you know, I founded, uh, co-founded Daughters for Earth, which is mobilizing $100 million to find, fund, and celebrate women-led climate actions. Um, and it was interesting because the first wave of funding that we did, you know, was we sort of, we did it on our own sitting somewhere in America and in, in the privilege that of our lives. And, you know, very soon it's like, that doesn't make sense. You know, yes, we may be all dedicated to climate, but there are women on the ground that they actually know exactly what they are, what they're doing and what's happening. And honestly, I've, I've worked with women 
for 35 years in my life and worked with women in war zones, as I mentioned earlier. But when it comes to climate, women are in their power, man. And it's like they are. They do not need to be re-empowered. Uh, they, they need for their power to be reinforced, celebrated, funded, acknowledged, invited, respected, but they are in their power. And so we flipped our philanthropic giving and we said, okay, instead of, you know, sitting in our privileged positions, even with our great moral values, it's still a privileged position to live in America and to have access to resources, you know, that we're going to flip it. And we, we created what's called Wise Daughters Council, which is women on the ground who have dedicated their lives to climate solutions, whether they are conservationists or, or scientists or agriculturists or all of that. And we, there are seven women from all over the world, from Ecuador to Kenya and Uganda and uh, among many other countries. Uh, and they, we said, here's, we just actually recently did that. It's like, here's a million dollars. Here's all the groups that have been nominated and vetted. So they all qualify. You tell us how to give that money you know it better. And that is for me another element of trust-based philanthropy is it's about not only trusting the people you're giving the money to know what they're doing, it is trusting their knowledge and trusting their wisdom, even though they may look differently, they may live in different places, they may uh, carry themselves differently, that we need to respect other knowledge bases that is not necessarily Western oriented. And it has been an amazing experience for us in growing and how our philanthropic giving and seeing how we can actually give their discussions, the level, the depth of their discussion was so different than ours. And I'm so humbled. I want to say proud, but humbled by being in service for women on the ground to be the philanthropists. They are not the rich people. <laughs> We're raising the money from the people who, are, who have wealth to, to give it. They are those who, are, who have their eyes and hearts and ears on the ground and seeing how to do it. So do we need to challenge, to your point, Raj, the philanthropic culture, the philanthropic system, which still exists on all power dynamics? Yes, I believe we do. And is the shift, you know, whether it is how McKinsey Scott is doing it or whether how we're doing it, is the shift going to be criticized and there even maybe mistake? Of course, of course. But so is the existing cult uh, culture of philanthropy. There are so many mistakes and oversights and damages that has been done that we simply don't even know about because we don't ask or we don't are not so intertwined in the cultures that we uh, fund. So, you know, this is for me the evolution of philanthropy. It is the evolution of, of, of uh, conversations and collaboration with other cultures and in a, in a way that respects others' knowledge rather than lectures and bring them to our own way of, of knowledge. So I, I do believe there is room and I'm very excited about the evolution of philanthropy. I'm actually very excited about what McKinsey Scott has done and I think it's very inspiring and I hope what we're doing is also inspiring for others to flip philanthropy on its head. Yeah, I think it's inspiring and it can also be challenging and maybe in a good way, right? Challenging the status quo of philanthropy and uh, in a way kind of how Give Directly uh, has challenged the traditional approaches to humanitarian and development aid. You know, maybe having trust-based philanthropy out there like Mackenzie Scott or even thinking about what OSF has done here where they've essentially devolved this $25 million to somebody who is a local activist who is then going to decide how to on-grant it. So very similar to the model you just talked about, Zainab. Michael, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this just as we get ready to close up. Thanks. Very little to add to what Zainab said, because I just think that all of that is, you know, um, so 
right spot on and also so grounded in experience um, that she has and that I don't. But I guess I would just say, you know, I think it's hard to argue that development funders generally have erred too far in trust toward trusting the people that they're funding. Um, so some experimentation in that direction or even significant movement um, to sort of challenge what seems to me to be a pretty risk averse status quo, um, you know, seems like a worthwhile venture. And then, you know, from our reporting side, you know, in both of these cases, you know, we're seeing just really interesting we're, we're getting really interesting insights into how some of these institutions operate. So, you know, the, the OSF um, uh, fund, for example, is obviously taking place within the context of a much broader reorganization there. And it's just sort of, it's interesting to see some of the first indications of what that might look like and, and that it's this devolution of, of power and decision-making to somebody who's literally been imprisoned. Um, it's pretty interesting. It is just one last thing I'd add here is, um, you know, another aspect of what Mackenzie Scott has done is that she's given away money very quickly, right? So you have a couple of hundred people that have signed the giving pledge as she has and said, we're going to give away at least half our wealth, you know, uh, before we die or upon our death. But very few have actually been able to keep on pace with their giving. In fact, most of even the most generous philanthropists their net worth has gone up. You know, in the case of Bill Gates, his net worth has actually increased, even though he's gifted, you know, so many tens of billions of dollars uh, because he's been doing it, you know, carefully and methodically. And Mackenzie Scott, using this trust-based approach, was able to get $14 billion out the door in just a few years. And she too has seen her net worth grow because, you know, when you're at that level of wealth and you're invested in companies, right? So she's now still worth $40 billion after giving away $14 billion. And so I think she's also showing that you can, yeah, take some risk in the way you give, but you can also take some more risk in the amount you give and how quickly you give, especially at a time of all the crises we're here talking about. So um, just an important example of some tension in this philanthropy space that I think is worth mentioning and worth you know continuing to cover as we will here at DevEx. So listen, it's been great to talk to the two of you. Raj, can um, I make two and, plugs? Yeah, please make them. First at COP uh, next Thursday, December 7th, is our DevEx Climate Plus event. And it's um, also streaming online. So I encourage people to check that out, Climate Plus. And you only have one name to remember because it's also uh, the name of the podcast that I'm hosting, Climate Plus, uh, which is available on uh, all podcast platforms. And that's where I'm having these conversations with folks who are, you know, deep into the COP process, but also, you know, leaders on the front lines of the climate crisis. So encourage you to check out both of those. That's great. I'm glad you made that plug because I will be there. And I, I, I look forward to, uh, to listening to your podcast and to participating in, you know, on stage at Climate Plus in Dubai in just a few days. And Zainab, I hope we get a chance to see you there too. I would love it. I would love to. Uh, count me in. I want to also listen and I will be definitely, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to come in person. If not, I'll uh, join you online. Definitely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Zainab Salvi, Michael Igo. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us at This Week in Global Development. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. 
To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.